Apparently, uh, I heard this morning that um, there's been a couple individuals in our church that have had some issues with our pulpit. It's been a, a distraction, apparently, with some sort of scratch along the front here. Um, actually, two individuals confessed today, so I really appreciate that. Um, oh, three? Was there a third? Okay, so there's three individuals. Uh, hopefully, the scratch has been taken care of up front, so you have nothing to distract you. So, ears, eyes, mind, engaged, right? All right, so let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the New Testament book of Luke. If you don't have your own copy, uh, there should be one in the back of the pew there for you. We're in the, use the New American Standard Bible here, uh, but we're in Luke chapter 6, looking at verses 20 through 26 this morning again, and we started a little bit last week, but... uh, And uh, looking at the Beatitudes here. So Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26 is what I'll be reading this morning. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do so. And God's Holy Word says this, And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that this morning as we hear your word, that we would do so with fear and trembling. So often, we hear your word, and we don't do your word. We hear your word, and we walk away from here, and don't live out what we've heard. So, Father, we just pray that this week that would not be so, but help this to enter into our minds and our hearts to be lived out for your glory through this week. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the many men and women who have brought your word to us. We pray for those, Lord, that do not have your holy word in their own language. Father, help us to honor you this morning through your word. Help us to know you more intimately than when we walked in here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we began last week by asking, asking the question of what makes you happy? And we came up with some different answers of some things that people in general come up with as to what would make them truly happy. And it's interesting that this week, you know, as I'm preparing, just this sermon material seems to come to my iPhone, you know. Uh, but this week, Time Magazine released its 10 science-proven ways that we can be happier. The world wants to be happy. The world has empirically driven answers on how it is we can become happy. 
So, what did they come up with to help you find happiness? Let me give you them. It's a top ten list, so I don't know if we need a drum roll at the end, but number one, to be happier, you need to do cultural activities. Go to a museum or go, go to a play. Number two, keep a diary because when you reread it, it will bring you joy. Mine's probably going to be more like the Chronicles of Eeyore. Uh, the third one, make small talk with a stranger. Number four, but may have meaning meaningful conversations with strangers as well. So apparently what your mom and dad tell you not to talk to strangers, they say talk to strangers. Number five, listen to this, live in the suburbs. Those of you who have acreage are missing out on your happiness. Number six, listen to sad songs. Why? Because they provide an emotional release and they help you stay balanced. Who knew that there's a tear in my beard that's crying for you, dear, would have brought you such joy? Number seven, spend money on experiences and not stuff. Number eight, Set tiny, attainable goals, like make someone smile in a day. I'm thinking that there's some of you who have the tiny goal of just getting out of bed in the morning, so that in itself should help you be happier. Number nine, look at beautiful things. Now, men, this is your cue to gaze at your wives right now. Look at beautiful things, because apparently looking at beautiful objects makes you feel happier. And number 10, mom was right, eat more fruits and vegetables. Who knew that Brussels sprouts and lima beans would make you happier? Mom knew. She, she did, didn't she? Well, it's fascinating that the world is looking for happiness, and it's fascinating how they think that they can obtain it. Now, we know that those uh, answers are it's grossly simplistic, and they're even horrendously misguided, because as we started to look at this sermon from Jesus last week that starts in verse 20 of chapter 6 and goes all the way to verse 49 there, he's going to look at his disciples, and he's going to explain to them and ultimately to us where true and lasting happiness will come from. Happiness is not going to be found in the abundance of our possessions. It's not going to be found in our professions. It's not even going to be found in the people that surround us. Now, that's not to say that those things, some of those things, can bring you a measure of joy and happiness in this life. Because you may own some things that give you great pleasure. I love my fishing pole. I love it seeing it cast out in the water with me reeling it, okay? You may find some enjoyment from your work and your labors. And you may think that your spouse or your children can bring you great joy and happiness. But when we take those things and we look at them in the light of eternity, those things that we enjoy here and today are temporary. They're temporal. But what Jesus is teaching is, is that for these disciples and for you as a believer, your greatest happiness and your most lasting delight is not found anywhere on this earth, but it is found in heaven. And it's only found in heaven because that's where he resides. It's not found in your money, your possessions, your social status, your good health, or your business success. 
But your greatest and lasting happiness can only be found in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. What do you gain as a believer in Jesus Christ when you die? You gain total relief from sin. You gain complete relief from sickness and pain. You gain the loss of any further heartache or sadness in your life. But ultimately, and more importantly, and more supremely, when you die as a believer, you gain Christ himself. And the only reason that we should look forward to those things, such as a total relief of sin, total relief of sickness, total relief of sadness, is because they will allow you to have absolute, total, uninhibited, unobstructed, eternal enjoyment of Jesus Christ. To want any of those other benefits apart from the living God is nothing else than idolatry. But sadly, there are probably millions of evangelicals who would be just as content with a heaven if Jesus wasn't there. But as we began last week, we noted that the word beatitude is simply the Latin word for blessed, or what we would say as happy in English. And we saw how Jesus takes and he turns things over in terms of how the world would see true happiness. And we looked at the first three of these paradoxical statements in verses 20 and 21 in our text. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, on a cursory reading of those statements, we look at those and we think, how is it that we can be poor and hungry and sad and yet be blessed and happy? But as we mentioned last week, these are not physical terms. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms here. But notice that also last week, we didn't really cover this, but in verse 20, that those who are poor, or better yet, poor in spirit, are those who understand that they're spiritually bankrupt before God, and that the reality of the kingdom of God belongs to them now. It says that yours is the kingdom of God. It is a current possession. When you understand that you have no spiritual resource, no good works by which you're going to commend yourself to God, the reality is, is that the blessings of the kingdom is yours now to enjoy. You, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit within you, you possess mercy, you possess grace, you possess hope, you possess forgiveness, and you possess Christ's imputed righteousness in your life right now. But of the other blessings, such as those who hunger for righteousness and those who weep, the blessings are in the future. They are still yet to come because it says that you shall be satisfied and you shall left laugh. There is a future complete enjoyment that is yet to come. So when you die as a believer and you enter into heaven, you will be completely satisfied, completely overjoyed to be in the presence of Christ, worshiping him for all of eternity. And it won't grow old. 
eternally satisfied, eternally joyful, eternally praising the one who was and is and is to come. Now, picking up where we left off last week in verse 22 there, it says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now, the first three Beatitudes reflect how we are to look at ourselves spiritually before God, right? Poor, hungry, sorrowful, and it's not a pick-and-choose buffet, but these all should be ours as characteristics as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And that's all in relation to our sinfulness and our righteousness and so forth and so on. But the fourth beatitude reflects how the world is going to look at us. There is a happiness or a blissfulness in the believer that comes when men hate, ostracize, insult, and scorn us for the sake of Christ. Now, we don't typically go around looking to be cast aside or isolated or persecuted just for the sake of those things or for experiencing those things. We don't intentionally look for men to hate us and ostracize us and insult us or scorn us. And I don't think that there's any of us here in this room that would claim that we desire those things to happen in our lives. And this isn't a persecution because you and I have been downright rude or mean, nasty, obnoxious. This isn't because you've been a snob to someone and and those other people, they just turn up their nose to you and respond in kind. But the key phrase to all of this in this verse is where it says, for the sake of the Son of Man. The underlying premise or the reason for experiencing those things from other people and from other men is because of your identity with Jesus Christ. In other words, it's because of our relationship with Jesus or our association with Christ that these things are going to occur. And we can almost look at it in the sense that when these things do occur in our lives, this being despised, hated, and rejected for Christ's namesake, that it's a validation that the other three Beatitudes are true. What you and I may question and and sometimes doubt in our lives, the world is going to clearly see it in us, right? It's, It's at this point, when we read this, we have to really do a heart check on ourselves, don't we? You may ask yourself, am I really poor in spirit? Do I really see myself as impoverished spiritually before God? Am I longing for Christ's righteousness to reign in my life? Am I really sorrowful when I sin against a holy and just God? Or am I trusting in my good works and my uber spiritual Facebook account? Am I trusting in my deeds that I do in front of everyone else to make sure that everyone thinks that I'm really a good Christian person? And and am I really sorry when I get caught for sin? Or am I just sorry that I actually got caught? These are questions that each and every single one of us have to reconcile in our minds and our hearts. But we can be rest assured that if you are persecuted 
isolated, cast aside as irrelevant, because of your identity with Jesus Christ, you can rejoice with exceedingly great joy because this should confirm to you that genuine salvation has occurred. That's why he says in verse 23, Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We can see this lived out in Acts chapter 4 and 5 very, very clearly, can't we? In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the Holy Spirit has descended. The apostles are going out and teaching and preaching with boldness, and they are just healed a man who was lame from birth. The church is gathering steam and growing at a rapid rate, and the Sadducees arrest and call Peter and John before them, and they essentially tell them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And in Acts 4, 19 and 20, John says to them, he says, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop talking or speaking about what we have seen and heard. It says that the Sadducees threaten them even further, and they let them go their way. So the people start all of a sudden keep coming in droves in Acts chapter 5 to be healed by the apostles. And the church keeps growing and growing and growing at this point. Then the high priests and the Sadducees, they rise up once again, they grab the apostles, and they throw them into jail once more. In the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord, he opens the prison gates, he lets them out, and he tells them to go on and keep preaching the message of life. The next day, the high priest and the council, they tell the prison guards, they said, hey, bring those guys out. But guess what? They're not there. Where are they at? Well, someone comes up and he runs up to him and he says, the men you threw in prison and are looking for, guess what? They're in the temple preaching to the people again. So the captain of the prison and the officers, they go and they get the apostles once more to stand trial before the council. And in verse 28 of Acts chapter 5, they say to the apostles, they say, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now Peter, he does not mince words with them. And he says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you had put to death. By hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They didn't like this answer, did they? They didn't really sit well with them. In fact, it says they were cut to the quick. They were ready to kill them, those men right there for what they had said. But then a Pharisee named Gamaliel comes along, and he says, he essentially tells these, the, the council, he says, if these men are truly from God, there's going to be absolutely nothing you can do to stop them. But if it's like some of these other people who have come and gone, let them go, and history will show that they're going to, we're going to write them off. They will no longer be a threat to us or anyone else. Now the high priests and, and the Sadducees think this is pretty wise counsel, don't they? And they, they bring in the, uh, the apostles once more, and it says they flogged them. They whipped them. Basically, they got 39 lashes with a whip across their back. 
and they take a whip or a bundle of cord or rods, and they whip it across their backside, and every time they get struck, their flesh rips open, excruciating pain. Each blow would tear your flesh. And so they flog these men, and they send them on their way, and they tell them again, don't preach in the name of Jesus. So after that, what's the response of the apostles? What do they say? In Acts 5.41, it says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They didn't go cower in a corner somewhere. They didn't move out to the country and try to hide from everybody. They didn't obey the council because they had a far greater master to obey. Because in verse 42, it says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. After being in prison twice, they rejoiced. After being brought before the Sanhedrin and standing in front of those men, usually there's like 70 men surrounding you, staring you down in anger and disgust, they rejoiced. And after receiving 39 lashes with a whip across their back, they rejoiced because they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Do you think Peter may have had this in mind when he said in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal among you comes among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And verse 14 tells us the why they should rejoice. Because if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you suffer for Jesus Christ, you can be assured that the spirit of God rests upon you. And that should give you great joy. Throughout human history, we've seen much persecution for those who claim the name of Christ We can look at the Roman emperors Diocletian or Maximian or Galerian, just to name a few. And as they ruled from 284 to 305, they would execute anyone who did not offer sacrifice to their Roman gods. And if you didn't surrender whatever copies of scripture you owned because they wanted to burn it with fire, they'd throw you in prison as well. But there are more Christians probably dying today than we probably have seen in any other time in history. We can look to the 21 Coptic Christians, and Coptic just means Egyptian, the Coptic Christians that were beheaded for their faith recently, or any number of violent or heinous crimes against Christians, and a majority of those are at the hands of militant Islamic extremists. But on a not-so-intense scale... And nonetheless, I believe it falls in the same category as being hated, ostracized, insulted, and scorned are those Christian business owners that are being attacked and isolated if they refuse to cater to the advocates of homosexual marriage. And this is being spearheaded in a large part by militant atheists. 
I read a story of a lady in Washington State recently that owns a flower shop. And she refused to provide flowers to a long-time male customers of hers who was attempting to unite in matrimony with another man. That man didn't like it, that she refused, and he filed a complaint with the state of Washington, and they are coming at her with everything they've got. In fact, once all the other homosexual couples heard that she is refusing service and that she can be fined $2,000 per incident, guess what they're doing? They're barraging her with orders and then filing complaints with the state and racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. It's already gone to the superior court in that state, and they ruled against her already. And the judge in that case, Judge Alex Ekstrom, he determined this, quote, While religious beliefs are protected by the First Amendment, actions based on those beliefs aren't necessarily protected. You really just have a, a freedom of thought, not a freedom to do anything with those thoughts. Do you hear the irony in that? You can believe whatever you want, you just can't act on it. Can you imagine the outcry of the homosexual movement if we told them the same thing? Or can you imagine a retaliation of the Muslim world if the women are told you can no longer wear all that headscarf and stuff? To be sure, this case is going to go on and on and on all the way up to the Supreme Court. But this isolation and persecution of Christian business owners is going to go on and on, whether you own a bakery, a flower shop, or a wedding chapel in Montana. It is going to go on and on and on. But when you are persecuted for the sake of the name of Jesus, when that persecution comes to you, you should rejoice in that persecution because of three things. I want to give you three things. Number one, as we saw in 1 Peter 5.14, it is a confirmation that the Spirit of God rests upon you. And because the Spirit of God rests upon you, He will give you all the enduring strength you need to make it through that persecution. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, when he talks about imploring the Lord three times to have that thorn in the flesh removed from him, he says this in conclusion, Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we face persecution and isolation and rejection, we can be of good cheer because God's power is displayed and perfected in us when we are at our weakest. He will give us the strength and he will give us the endurance to make it through whatever situation comes our way. Number two, we should rejoice in persecution because it says in verse 23 in our text that we will have the promise of heavenly reward. This isn't something that God is just lingering out there for us to try to earn, but it's a reminder that God will by no means forgive or vindicate us when forget or vindicate us rather when we suffer for the name of Jesus. Romans 8:18 8, says for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal 
weight of glory, far beyond all comprehension, comparison. Do you hear that theme? Do you hear that in those verses that when you are suffering and you are persecuted for a, being a Christian, that however deep, however painful that suffering may be, that you can't even begin to compare it to how joyful, how glorious, and how beautiful eternity will be with the living God. So we should rejoice in the midst of persecution because our reward in heaven is great. The third thing, we should rejoice because as it says in the end of verse 23 there, in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. You are in good company when you are persecuted for being a Christian because if you are persecuted for the name of Jesus, you are now in a long line of faithful messengers of God. James reminds us in uh, chapter 5, verse 10, of enduring through suffering and persecution. He says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So James is telling us to be encouraged when you are persecuted because the prophets receive the exact same treatment. Now, just as Jesus has gone through and, and he's described the four blessings that come with following him, he's going to flip the paradox and he's going to switch over to those that are cursed. And, and we don't want to belabor these things too much because we, they're really kind of just the opposite of the blessings. But verse 24, it says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Again, we're not talking about a matter of economics. These are those who think they have enough spiritual riches that God is going to grant them the kingdom of God. And this really is what the majority of the world uh, thinks of when they think about being able to go to heaven, don't they? They think if they do enough good deeds, if they have enough piety, if they have enough religiosity, that they're going to make it into heaven. And sadly, there's probably many who even attend church on a regular basis that think that as well. They're not banking on what Jesus Christ has done and is doing on their behalf, but they're depending upon their own spiritual wealth, their own righteousness, and they think they're going to stand before God and point to all they have accomplished, and they're going to say, Look, Lord, didn't I do a good job for you? Uh, aren't you proud of me? And to that, he pronounces upon them, Woe. Just like those who are poor in spirit are enjoying the blessings of the kingdom right now, notice that it says that you are receiving your comfort in full. On this side of eternity, this is all you get to enjoy. Your pride of life, your haughtiness, men on this side of heaven thinking how great you really are, this is it. That's all you get. Verse 25 continues, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Essentially, the satisfied are those who think they've checked all their spiritual checkboxes in life, and therefore they don't see themselves really in need of God. There is no longing in their life for the righteousness of Jesus Christ because they feel as though they possess enough of it. They say to themselves, I'm not that bad of a guy, and I'm not that bad of a sinner. They might even look at someone else and say, if he's going to heaven, 
I'm better than he is. I surely should be able to get in. But they are fully satisfied with their own level of morality and their own personal righteousness. Then in verse 25, it also says, Woe to you who laugh now. These are those who are just happy and content with their spiritual state. They, they're happy with their morality. They're happy with their state of their souls. They can't even imagine a Christian who says that I possess Jesus Christ, and yet I want more and more and more of him. It's foreign to them because they are perfectly content with a God that they can occasionally visit on Sundays, and maybe they can do it to make mom or grandma happy, or they just think they're enjoying life, and they don't see a reason why they should submit to God. And so as a result, he says that you will mourn and weep. Essentially, you will spend eternity in hell where you will have weeping and gnashing of teeth. And those are the words that Jesus uses to describe hell. And the last curse is the curse of popularity. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. When everyone loves your version of Christianity, that's a problem. When you only present God as the God of love and he's got this wonderful plan for your life and he wants you to have every earthly possession your little heart can imagine and he wants you to be happy and smiling on TV. He's not a God who judges people and neither am I. And everyone loves that for you. Jesus pronounces to you, woe. If you're a so-called Christian leader and Oprah is having you come on her network for a weekly show, that's a problem. If the world is buying your books by the millions at Walmart's religious section, you might want to reevaluate your message and what you've written because the world does not love Jesus Christ. They only love their own comfortable, molded version of him. False prophets, prophets are going to be popular. Those who mischaracterize God and His holiness and His righteousness are going to be well-liked by the masses. Those who elevate His love and grace and mercy and then neglect God's wrath, His justice, and coming judgment, people are going to love that, and you'll be very popular for it. But Jesus pronounces woe to you. You see, I think in a large part that People, when they want to talk about God, they love to quote John 3.16, right? We love to put that on that poster board at the football game and hold it up for everybody to see, right? The football players love to put it on that little uh, eye stuff that they do. I'm not sure what that is. But they love to put John 3.16 on there. And the reason we love that verse is why? Because of the first five words, right? For God so loved the world. That's a palatable God that everybody can embrace, right? We don't ever really need to stop and contemplate the other words in that verse that should be of great importance. Will not perish. Will not perish from what? God's wrath. The world is perishing, folks. If there is anything that should ever motivate you for sharing the gospel, it should be emblazoned on your mind that the world is perishing. When we share the gospel, we've got to talk about some things that are uncomfortable sometimes, and that is sin. 
The world is perishing because of sin. And so in order for that good news to truly be good news, we've got to give them the bad news. Because there is fixed a day in which every person alive will face the judgment of God. And you will face that judgment either in your death or at Christ's coming when he returns. And he's not coming back here to be everybody's little buddy. It's not going to be this uh, uh, where he's going to come and carry everybody on his back and leave only the little set of footprints that he leaves in the sand. The only imprints that are going to be in the sand is you, your toes, and your knees, and your hands, and your face as you bow down before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back like a bolt of lightning, riding on a mighty white horse, and his robe is going to be dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. And he is going to rule, and he's going to reign, and he's going to conquer And he's going to damn. But Jesus in this verse, he's giving us two options. Do you see yourself as poor and hungry and sorrowful and a rejected sinner who longs to cry out to God for mercy? Are you depending upon the redemptive work of Christ on the cross so that you can enjoy him forever in heaven? Or... Do you think you can make it on your own with your own spiritual riches? Fully satisfied, fully happy with your own personal righteousness, and you're popular because of it. And in the end, you receive what God has promised, an eternal torment and sorrow and separation from God. There's two options here, folks. Have you come to an honest assessment of your sinfulness? Have you come to terms of peace with Jesus Christ? Are you going to trust in your righteousness? Or are you going to trust in His? If you haven't trusted in His, He bids you to come. Come to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for this message of uh, salvation through Jesus Christ. We don't have to strive and we don't have to just depend upon ourselves for redemption, but we can depend upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that has not submitted to your lordship, who has not bowed the knee, Lord, I just pray you'd work in their heart convict them of their sin, that they may confess you as Lord in Christ. Father, help us to honor you from here this day. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.